Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today's Talking Politics guide is with Chris Bickerton, an expert on European politics and on populism, and he's telling us about technocracy. These Talking Politics guides are brought to you as ever in partnership with the London Review of Books, whose summer sale with the Paris Review, two subscriptions for one low price, is open to Talking Politics listeners. Head to lrb.co.uk forward slash guides for more information, along with the usual lists of further readings from the LRB archive. Let's start by just trying to make sense of what the word means. So where does technocracy as a term come from? So the term technocracy means different things to different people, I think it's fair to say today. The sort of conventional understanding of it is that in some way it's about rule by experts. And that's, I think, a kind of common sense understanding of it. It's pretty accurate. The term itself is a bit more complex in terms of its evolution. The earliest sort of idea of technocracy, which is why people always tend to go back to to Plato, is that it's a certain idea about the nature of politics. And the radical thing which Plato did, which was why I think people sort of hark back to Plato when they try and define technocracy or pin it down, is that Plato rejected a distinction which was quite a classical distinction in Greek political thought between politics, the polis, this realm of of freedom and self-realisation for people who were allowed to, to be a part of it, and what the Greeks called the oikos, the household. And this was a very clear distinction, and Plato said, well, actually, we can think about politics in the same way that we think about how we govern the household. And governing the household, which was the domain of also the way people thought about economics, is that it's a kind of craft, it's a kind of skill, it's a technique. And why should we not think of politics as a kind of skill, as a kind of craft? And we could identify people who have the capacity to exercise that kind of craft and nominate them as our rulers, the philosopher kings. So there we have the association between expertise, a certain kind of special knowledge, and power. So there we have technocracy. But the evolution then changes a bit because we begin to associate towards the end of the the 19th century and into the 20th century with technological developments and we associate technocracy as a as an actual sort of movement if you like with modernization with the role of engineers in particular those with technical know-how and that then carries us through into the into the 20th century and then it starts to have a number of different associations as we go on is it fundamentally certainly in the modern version of it opposed to the idea of democracy is the idea that you contrast this kind of expertise or knowledge or whatever it is with just asking the people to decide? So I would say that the platonic conception is more opposed to democracy because it has has a certain idea of politics, which is that people who have this specialist knowledge should rule over, over others. The opposition there is very clear with democracy. Technocracy versus democracy. As we get to the more recent period, it becomes, I think, a little bit more complicated. There is a certain strand of thinking which I tend to associate with a kind of Silicon Valley-based sort of boosterism, where there's this idea that technological solutions are there for us to seize and they can do away with conventional politics altogether. So there's a kind of post-political technocracy, if you like, that has a huge faith in the capacity of you know high tech to, to solve social problems. But that's, I think, 
not really the mainstream view. If you look around and think, okay, when we talk about technocracy today and we oppose it to democracy and look for evidence of that, what you find is something a bit more complicated, which is people tend not to go as far as saying it's an alternative to democracy, at least as far as I can tell, but people say that it's a it's a complement to democracy. And what we have to do is we have to be able to identify those realms of human activity that are best served through empowering experts to make judgments and decisions versus those that we think are more properly the realm of democracy, uh, where people have a, have a say. So to take a very obvious example, it's readily accepted, I think, in many countries today, certainly in Western countries, that central banking is the domain of the expert. And you have that often expressed in law, where central banks are formally independent from governments and can set interest rates according to what they think is the best level to, to meet their inflation targets. So that's the realm of, if you like, the technocrat. Now, the assumption there is that these have a complementary relationship. I think if you dig a bit deeper, you say, well, who decides what is the realm of the technocrat and what is the realm of the democrat? Who decides where the boundary lies? And in many cases, it seems to be that it's the technocrat or it's a a decision taken not by the people, but by the administration, by the state or by an academic writing about it, who decides where the boundary lies. And so there is a sort of second order problem, if you like, about who determines how the complementarity between technocracy and democracy should work. And do you think it still contains in it, say, that example, which is the one I think most people think of now, economic expertise, that this is a technical form of knowledge? Because, as you've suggested, that that also can blur. I mean, if the question is, how do we run the economy? Is that a technical question? And if that is a technical question, does it leave out other aspects of the question which are equally important? So I definitely don't think it's a technical question. However... It begs the question why we've associated economists with this idea of technocracy or why we've tended to invest economists with decision-making power independently from politics. And I think the answer there is that over, I suppose, over the last 40 years or so, there's been, and this is pre-crisis, I think, in the last 10 years, these things have begun to change a bit. But there was a period where there was a great deal of consensus within the economics profession about what models they were using to, to study the economy and to understand the economy. And what were the models that would be used by decision makers, by policy makers to make big decisions about you know, fiscal policy or monetary policy? Now, if there's consensus on something, then it becomes very easy for a politician to say, well, let's give it over to the experts because this isn't really a political decision for us. Parties aren't disagreeing on it. There aren't you know, rival views of how to do this. And so let's delegate to an independent body. So insofar as there's consensus around these questions, they appear to us as technocratic. When there isn't consensus, then that's where the technocratic model breaks down. So if there are really different views about either where inflation comes from or what the right inflation rate should be or how you should use monetary policy. Uh, These things just have no consensus view within the field of economics. It's very difficult to imagine how you would have a a technocratic body deciding on those things because people would, at the very least, they would disagree about appointments because they would say you can't appoint this person because they have a different view from this other person. So the model breaks down and that draws you then back into the world of politics and political debate. Is it possible here that actually one of the things that's going on is there are some questions that don't require necessarily technical knowledge, but that conventional party politics has really struggled to tackle because there is no agreement, that actually one of the temptations of technocracy 
is to devolve questions outside of democratic politics because they're too hard, not because we fundamentally agree, but because we fundamentally don't agree. And that actually technocracy is the get out for disagreement, not agreement. I think at a later stage, yes. It just seems to me if you trace the sort of areas that have been subject to the most amount of delegation, this you know, there seems to be a sort of a pattern where as political consensus establishes itself for good or for bad, and sometimes that consensus is really just that one side lost. So if you take the sort of the economic policy, you have the defeat of a worldview shaped by left-wing thinking around economics, um, a Keynesian view of the world, or a view that the price system is not the best way to distribute goods. Insofar as that vision lost out and was seen to be less, performed less well than the sort of market-based vision, then that consensus develops in that way. So it can be that just one side loses and that's how the consensus forms. When you get a bit further down the line, so if we take the post-2008 period, I definitely think that some really difficult questions that were confronted by legislatures, by the British Parliament, for instance, by MPs, were then foisted onto the Bank of England and onto monetary policy makers because politicians didn't really either couldn't agree, didn't know exactly what to do, or didn't really want to bear the responsibility of decisions. So some of the stuff around quantitative easing, for instance, the way the central banks have been quite activist, these have big effects for society as a whole. Had it been the decision by by the House of Commons on monetary policy, on quantitative easing, for instance, rather than the central bank, some of these disagreements would have probably come out, and it's not clear, in my view, that the same policy would have been pursued. But the politicians were happy to foist that responsibility onto the central bank. We see it very recently now, just a few days ago, the Labour Party came out with this idea that they thought the Bank of England should be responsible also for trying to achieve productivity targets for the British economy, not just inflation rates, but productivity targets. Nobody, I think, seriously believes that the Bank of England has some magic solution to raising productivity in the British economy. But for politicians, it's a way of evading responsibility themselves for productivity by giving it to the Bank of England to do. So their disagreement and also just a sense of a cop-out starts to feed in and empowers technocratic institutions further. As you say, it tends to get identified with economists, central bankers, in some realms, health experts, scientists. I mean, obviously, there are lots of questions that do require scientific expertise, energy policy. But are there certain politicians you think also either publicly or privately, think of themselves as technocrats? Is it, a, is it a strain in contemporary democratic politics at the level of the elected politicians? I think it is, yeah. I think for some time now, I think we've been in an age where politics is organised around claims to expertise, not by people who are sort of outside of politics, but by people seeking office, seeking uh, to get elected. And so you get a lot of everyday discussion about whether you think somebody would do a good job. Are they competent? Competence has become a sort of a big issue. And there's no doubt, I think, that it's established itself now as one of the key ways in which we judge the performance of our politicians, retrospectively, but also if we think about whether we want to elect them or not, is do we think they're competent and what's their record outside of politics? Um, how good have they been you know, in politics? But it becomes that way of understanding. And so about what they propose to do, the content of the ideas, the content of the policies is measured also against whether you think they're good at their job or not. So there's a kind of CV orientation to politics, I think. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When Tony Blair said, as part of what used to be called a kind of third way idea of politics, that basically his ideology was what works, and that was the New Labour project, is that a technocratic vision of politics? What works? So I think it is, uh, because it posits politics as a sort of um, kind of a binary choice between what works and what doesn't. Now, there's an alternative way of thinking about politics, which is that some things may work and some things may not. But what you have a choice between is two different ways of doing something that are based on different values, different ideas about how society should be organised. And so one isn't wrong in any way. And the other isn't right. They are just different. And they are not compatible because they place an emphasis on different values, different visions of society. And I think that has given way to a certain sense of right versus wrong, what works, what doesn't work. Um, And that introduces into the whole debate a technocratic element. And I think right and wrong in politics is is quite a dangerous direction to go into. So what then is the relationship between technocracy and populism? Because populism often seems a reaction against this, including what you said about competence and judging people by results, that some strands of populist politics seem to be pushing back against that and saying, actually, what matters is people who think like us, talk like us, sound like us. And we're not so concerned, if you think about Trump or whoever, with results. Is that opposition between technocracy and populism the right way to think about this? There is an element of opposition, there's no doubt. And that's in some way sort of obviously the case. These experts are the sort of the elites and the populists mobilise the people. So it's us versus them and the them in some way is the, are the experts as well as everybody else. Um, and so just to take that example, when Michael Gove said the British public have had enough of experts, that was a, an anti-technocratic argument? Well, it was against the idea that expertise or sort of claims to expertise should be decisive in settling a political question. In some ways, what's sort of also maybe more interesting is that if you take somebody like Trump, so Trump, on the one hand, you would describe him as a populist, and he mobilises a lot of the language we associate with with contemporary populism. But Trump is is a clear what works person very much focused on getting the job done, being sort of um, more effective, more decisive, being able to deliver much more than his predecessors. In the US presidential election, I was struck by how often, not so much himself, but certainly his supporters would talk about the plumbing metaphor. You know, if your pipes are broken, you want to get a plumber in who can really fix it. And so that idea of fixing problems was part of his appeal. And he played it up by saying, I'm, you know, I've been very successful in my sort of private life, whether you think that's right or not. That's nevertheless the claim he made. Now, that draws on quite an old strain, certainly about people from business going into politics, which is that they they use this language of, of technocracy and of expertise by saying, I've been a success story in business. I'm a good CEO let me apply my skills to the world of politics and I will fix things the way I have fixed companies or fixed you know, problems in business. Is there a contrast between that and the sort of central banker version? Because the thing that Trump comes to fix is Washington. And part of his appeal is that he's tough as hell and he's a deal maker. So a deal is not quite the same as a technical economic solution to a market problem. 
it's partly to do with force of personality. It's partly to do with being willing to say the unsayable thing. So even within this thing that we call technocracy, should we be distinguishing between the kind of wonkish side and the, the deal-making side? Yes, I think technocracy and or those different claims that have sort of a technocratic element to them, they're different and we need to distinguish between them. What I've often said is that certainly the populism and technocracy, they're not the same, but the thing that they have in common is that they're opposed to the same thing. So the thing that brings your sort of wonkish central banker together with your concentrated dealmaker of a Trump sort of kind is that they both in many ways are opposed to the same thing, which is the sclerotic political class. And it's very common, certainly from the technocratic side, to hear complaints about party politics, excessive partisanship, how slow the decision-making process is when you have to get consensus between these different groups. So they're against party politics, which they tend to interpret basically as special interests, really, as a kind of rent-seeking, if you use the economic term. From the sort of deal-making sort of populist politician, they are also opposed to the same thing. And so they're sort of getting the job done It's not exactly the same as a central banker wanting to get the job done, but they are opposed in many ways to what they think the problem is, which is this, you know, sclerotic political class that can't get the job done. It's maybe clear in the United States that the Trump administration has found some way to bridge the divide between, as it were, Wall Street and the populist strand of what Trump's doing. I don't know how long that will last, but it seems to be under more strain in Europe. I mean, there does seem to be a much more fundamental tension in the European case between some of these new part populist, part technocratic parties, particularly, say, the Five Star Movement, something like that, and the EU-level wonkish technocrats. Is that where the real strain is now in European politics, that actually those two things, even though they're opposed to the same thing, they're also now opposed to each other? The European dimension is different because there is this added element of the EU which can be a source of sort of um, basis for attacking the technocratic aspect of decision-making. In some ways, it's probably wrong to exaggerate sort of the similarities between technocracy and, and certainly the populist element here, because the big difference is about around elections. And I think what we've seen in Europe recently is that you've had some of these sort of movements winning elections and so getting the kind of power that comes with office. And the weak position, I suppose, the technocrat is always in is that if you accept what we were saying at the very beginning, which is that technocracy today doesn't claim to replace democracy. It only claims to be a complement to it and doesn't want to tread on the toes of what is properly democratic decision-making. Then it's it's always in a, in a weak position if it's faced with populist movements that are winning elections and really claim you know the democratic mantle for themselves. Because then you can try and face it down, but I think what we saw in Italy quite recently, where the president tried to face down the, those nominating a government, the clash there was very clear, and the president's authority was partly constitutional, but because it was also associated with the views of the European Union, it had this technocratic quality to it, um, and it was on shaky ground, there's no doubt. Um, so I think people are conscious of that. So. It's easy to exaggerate the role of technocratic decision-making. You know, we've not had that many technocratic governments in Europe since the Second World War. We've actually had very few, even though people may think we've had loads. So I think the, the difficulty from a position of those wanting to defend sort of a more technocratic point of view is that nobody's really saying we can systematically replace democratic structures with technocratic ones. Would you describe Emmanuel Macron as a technocratic, democratic politician? Macron, I think from the way he acts and from the things he's said, I think the answer is probably yes. And one of the reasons is that Macron has 
if you like, brought in the the administrative state in France into his presidential practices and work without there being really a very strong political party that he's come from. His movement is you know, very much controlled by himself. It's very top-down and it's very new. And people, certainly within France, have begun to criticise the extent to which he just mobilises the technocratic authority of the state to pursue his projects at the expense of the parliament, at the expense of the party system. And, and he's also very much a I-get-things-done person, absolutely um, results-orientated. Uh, you know, the what-works sort of philosophy is, is Macronism for sure. And there's not a lot of patience with the kind of deal-making that has to take place at the party political level. He just has no patience with that. On the other hand, thinks of himself as a real voice for the people who are tired of French politics the way it used to be done before he arrived. So there is this kind of combination of being popular in his view and very efficient in getting things done. And it's technocratic in the sense that he places great emphasis on expertise. There's no doubt that's his sort of big thing. Does that mean that one of the things that technocracy is opposed to is just straightforwardly political parties, that parties are the thing that get in the way of results in politics? The answer to that is definitely yes, and there's a reason for it, I think, which is that if technocracy rests on this right or wrong view of politics, which is that there's a right answer and you have to get the right people around the table who know what they're talking about to get there, party politics is premised on something very different. It's premised on the idea that there isn't any right answer. And at the end of the day, because we disagree on things, the only way to settle something is through an election, through getting a majority and through pursuing your programme that way. So there's a kind of inbuilt relativism to party politics, which technocracy is, simply doesn't have. It's the exact opposite. And I think that sense of right or wrong is very powerful within a sort of technocratic view of the world, and it really jars with this much more relativist view of the world if you're a party politician. You're there to try and win elections. If you can't, you have to accept that the other side has the right to pursue their policies. You just couldn't convince the voters. Would you think it was fair to describe the current Chinese political system as basically technocratic, the non-democratic version of this same thing that we've been talking about? So, I mean, the relationship of technocracy and a sort of non-democratic political system is obviously different, I think, partly because the the boundaries are not drawn in the same way. So I think in the Chinese political system, there has been, and there has been for a long time, ever since it kind of opened up and decided to really focus on uh, on building a market and on sort of becoming more prosperous. Um, and, and Deng Xiaoping had his version of what works being the new philosophy of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, I think the bet, if you like, has been to go for that at the expense of opening up in a political sense. But it clearly rests on a, a claim that the market works in delivering you know, what people want, which is material development and prosperity. Now, the difficulty, I suppose, is from the the Chinese perspective, the moment that no longer works, then you have nothing else to rest on. And that's, I suppose, the thing about the the power of a, of a democratic system is that because it doesn't rest so entirely on the effectiveness of a particular combination of policies, then when those don't work, the political system itself is not foundationally challenged. Those in office are, and you then vote them out. And the, uh, a non-democratic system is far more wedded to technocracy in a way, uh, because its very existence depends on, on it getting the, the right answer. Where, if anywhere, do you see the technocratic strain in British politics? You mentioned it in relation to the current Labour Party and the Bank of England, but I think that will surprise some people who maybe don't think of the Corbyn project as a technocratic project. They think of it as an ideological project. Who are the technocrats in Britain today? 
So the UK has been one of the sort of front runners in the development of a very broad, what people call the regulatory state. Investing power in sometimes entirely independent institutions or almost independent institutions to do all sorts of policy work across all the different parts of what government does. I think the the strain of technocracy in British politics is partly through how important we think competence is and we criticise or celebrate our politicians based on whether we think they're competent or not. So there is this CV quality to the way we talk about politics. But I think the main issue is that the British political system and the British state as a whole has, over the last 30-odd years, orientated itself increasingly around an unelected branch where power is invested in institutions run by experts. And I think that simply hasn't gone away. I think it's very powerful and very present in our politics. Um, And I suppose the resistance comes when people begin to realise that it undermines greatly what they think Parliament can do. And so certainly the British Parliament has spent a lot of time saying, well, we can't do this, we can't do that, it's not up to us. And I think there's beginning to be a bit of a sort of question around, you know, whether that's the right way or not. So there isn't really a sort of a party or a person that's sort of taken on the mantle of the technocrat. I think it suffuses the way we think about politics generally. But it's also the case that we just have many unelected institutions whose authority rests on the expertise of those who, who run them. To find links to some of the things that we've been talking about, please follow us at tppodcast underscore. Our next episode is going to be a panel recorded live at the Wilderness Festival talking about the politics of food. My name's David Runciman and we've been talking politics. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.